Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson, and you're listening to show number 95. I grew up Jewish, and as a kid, there were a lot of things that I really liked about being Jewish and about the Jewish community and about the things we thought about and talked about. And one of them was a real commitment to social justice so that it wasn't just about praying, about God, about ritual, but it was also about making the world a better place. One of the things that I have come to notice is that the definition of a better place typically revolved around humans only. They really didn't look at animals, specifically, at, at other, other creatures. Um, you know, we were interested in, in, in environmental stuff, but typically that was um, so humans could live on the planet. And so when I got a chance to talk to Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, who is the founder and CEO of the Shemayim Va'aretz Institute for Animal Welfare, and Shemayim Va'aretz is Hebrew for heaven and earth, um, I was really interested in what he saw as the Jewish tradition around animal welfare. And in our conversation, I got a real sense of, first of all, that Rabbi Shmuley is a hell of a guy, if, if you're allowed to use that word to describe a, uh, a religious leader. In our conversation, Rabbi Shmuley takes me on a tour of the Jewish tradition on animal welfare, on taking care of creatures other than uh, uh, just other humans. And we talk about his work, we talk about his activism, his teaching, his the theological writing and advocacy. And I hope you get a sense of the man uh, in the same way I did, as a, a gentle spirit and a fierce warrior for, for these issues that are, that are so important, not just for the animals, but also for human dignity. Uh, the word dignity came up a few times in terms of who are we, what kind of creatures are we, and the way we treat animals, the way we treat those who are not us, says a lot about how much dignity we express in the world. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Um, I think if, if you're Jewish, you'll get a lot out of it. And I'm hoping that if you're not Jewish, um, that we manage to translate these um, parochial terms into a kind of a, a universal language that will resonate and make sense. So without further ado, Shmuley Yanklowitz, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much, Howard. It's, it's terrific to be with you. Yeah. So you have had a, a, a long and illustrious career already um, in, in so many different fields. And one of them is around animal welfare, specifically as it relates to Jewish law and Jewish custom in the Jewish community. Can you kind of give us your, your backstory as to how this became something that you cared about when there are so many issues of justice and social justice and, and other issues that, that call to, to uh, Jewish people of faith? Thank you. Yeah, you know, I was involved and am involved in, in numerous social justice causes around worker, worker justice, immigration, poverty and homelessness, prison reform, all types of issues. And what I started to realize that there were a set of assumptions in the broader social justice communities, um, and there were certain assumptions of what was not included. And um, 
the conversation of animal welfare, animal rights was totally out of bounds in those conversations to the extent that all sort of sensitivity towards vulnerable populations existed, uh, excluding uh, the animal kingdom. Um, even the environmentalists, uh, I found, were primarily not uh, not so interested. And so um, it was a bold move uh, to to sort of step away from some of those establishments, or uh, you know, or step away in this regard, um, and, um, uh, and 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 to, to found sort of the the leading Jewish animal welfare. Uh, organization, which um, for me came from a very personal place. I remember I was in grad school and I ordered, you know, it was probably uh, over a decade ago, and I ordered a big plate of, of beef and I ate this big plate of beef within like three minutes. And there were five people around me in a conversation and I had zoned them out and I was just pounding this food. And I realized I had become like you know, uh, uh, something very detestable in my own eyes, that I wasn't sort of intentional and conscious but how I was living. I didn't see beyond the surface. Uh, I, I didn't see the health component. I didn't see the, the, the dignity component. I didn't see the welfare side. And, and, and then I really pulled towards this vegetarian front. And then on my wedding day, my wife and I became vegans uh, together. Um, we had our last dairy meal, and then we uh, became vegans that day. And we said, geez, if we're going to do this, we might as well, you know, build a community around us. And so we founded Shemayim Baretz, which translates as heaven and earth, um, in order to start to build that community, whether people are coming in from the animal welfare right side, whether they're coming in from the health side, whether they're coming from the environmental side, uh, whatever it is, to build sort of a, a, a big tent and inclusive community around people who feel real trouble about how things are, are, are operating right now. What what do you think it is about animal welfare that caused people to have such blinders? People who are so aware of other things. You know, when I when I think about um, people's engagement around issues larger than themselves, it's often like there's a picture of a beached whale. Like our our compassion goes out to individual creatures, to a to a panda, you know, to a, a, a an endangered tiger. Why is why does that get flipped when we move into social action that all of a sudden animals become invisible? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a great question that that I continue to grapple with. On one level, I think there is something uh, so um, profoundly powerful about the gut and about the appetite that overwhelms, you know, we see this with sexual desire in some regards, those who can't control that. And we see that with food appetites. Those who can't control um, that sense of curbing desire and uh, that overwhelming feeling, I think, puts this, this, this block over some people's eyes to not want to see this other reality. But on a philosophical level, I think a lot of people have drank some kind of Kool-Aid, which a lot of religions are actually responsible for, uh, including my own, um, on saying humans are the center of the universe. Um, and what that means is that everything else is for our instrumental purpose. The land is for our pleasure. The, the animal kingdom is for our pleasure. Right? All the supplies, you know, all of the resources in the world are for our own instrumental use. And I think we have to construct more responsible theologies that emphasize the infinite dignity of humans, but also uh, place a, a bigger burden of responsibility and, and moral clarity around how we relate to 
the universe that we are stewards of, we're responsible for rather than merely consumers of. So I think primarily it's that it's that twisted philosophical approach. It's this it's this appetite which is hard to curb. And then I think there's another level of just you know which you pointed to, of 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 just sort of cognitive confusion around why would a cow be different than a cute dog, right? Why would that panda be any different than a pig or or or, or a chicken? And I think that it gets exacerbated by our age of social media, where we are more in touch with the complexity of the world than ever before, and yet we're more detached from simple truths in, in a lot of ways because of the pace uh, and the fragmentation of our minds, that we've lost this basic sense of sentience, right? That people were involved in their backyards and in their yards. They were involved with animals. They were, they were connected to the earth. And we're kind of seeing the world from a distance. And in some sense, we've lost some basic sense of empathy and some, some, some sense of, of, of sentience. You know, as David Hume famously said, a person is more consumed, concerned with the stubbing of their own toe than they are of a death on the other side of the world. And it's uh, all the more so when it comes to this issue. Hmm. So, I mean, one of the things that you um, write about on the Shemaim Varetz website is the idea that, at least according to Jewish tradition, eating animals was a form of moral compromise. Um, that, you know, the, the original um, text in, 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 the, in the Torah, in the Bible, has you know the Garden of Eden is we're 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 sort of one with with the animals and we're and all the plants of the uh, of the field are for us, um, and yet there's 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 a lot of inherent tensions in that tradition around whether are we stewards are we masters are we equals, um, how did you be first begin to navigate with a tradition that it it, it may point in many cases towards. Uh, a vegetarian lifestyle, but also points in many cases elsewhere, as with, as with so much in a, in a long and complex theology. How did you start to grapple with the texts that you needed to, to kind of live, live in harmony with? Thank you. Yes. So, you know, it really has been quite socially alienating within a community that has kind of cherry-picked sources around this issue. And kind of miss the uh, the um, the meta ethics um, that are that that a lot of these texts are getting at. And for myself, I come from uh, one of the most traditional ends. I'm I'm myself a modern Orthodox, which means I'm a embrace modernity in its fullest sense, but I'm still fully committed to Jewish law in an Orthodox sense. And so these texts are quite important to me, and 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 the various laws as well. And I started to look more closely, what was this about, um, this very heavy uh, meat and, and unhealthy culture? And in fact, if you look at Israel, for example, those who are Haredi, or the ultra-Orthodox, are seven times more obese than those who are Chiloni, or, or secular Israelis. That, that something, there's a direct correlation with religiosity and um, lack of health, you know, healthful practices. And so um, a lot of these texts, I think, have kind of misguided in terms of how they've been read. So it's quite clear that the Garden of Eden was a, was a, uh, was a vegan diet, and that once they had 
um, uh, sort of eaten the forbidden fruit, which is actually fascinating, right? Because it's the Eitz Hadat Tovera in Hebrew, which means the tree, the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And once they ate food, they gained a moral consciousness, right? Which is fascinating because it's in the first act of food consumption that brings about moral consciousness. And um, in that moment, it became clear that um, they couldn't sustain living in this sort of uh, uh, paradise. And so uh, the text explains that that they are removed from there and have to kind of work the land themselves. And after the flood, um, the flood of Noah, just 10 generations later, um, it becomes clear that, um, that then there was a concession made for the consumption of meat um, because, you know, the world had been corrupted, you know, according to this, this story, um, uh, the world had been corrupted, that he, there was, the bar was lowered for humans. So fine, not that it's good to do this, but if you, if you choose to do this, it's now permitted in a sense. But then what happens a few generations later is that um, these, these kashrut laws get introduced, the, the, the laws of keeping kosher. And a lot of those, I believe, are about distancing oneself from animal products. Let me give a prime example, which is the most uh, traditional approach is that one way six hours between the eating of meat uh, from milk. So, so if one has eaten meat six hours before having dairy, and I think a big part of that is trying to wean one off of, uh, of, of that consumption. But at the end of the day, for me, um, a lot of the, the, you know, beyond the rational sources, there's a lot of mystical and Kabbalistic sources, which, which seem to suppose that animals themselves have, um, uh, deep spiritual qualities and connectivity, and that um, that one who merely consumes them or their products uh, um, uh, is affecting their soul in a very kind of deep way. And um, Jewish law is that in Hebrew it's called halakha, which means to go, or the way I like to translate it is progress. And so I I view Jewish law as a vehicle towards progress, and I think that we know. Not only in the 21st century do we know a lot more about these industries than we did in the past, but we also know they're they're getting worse um, over the last number of decades, and uh, in so many different ways. And so I think that Jewish law, to be relevant and responsible, has to respond to that, and at the least break away from um, you know this mass industrial factory farming type industries because kosher meat comes from the same places. It comes from the, the, the dairy comes from the same place. It's all the same stuff. Just so, you know, there'll be a slight tweak of how the animal's killed in the end. Um, and so I think that, that, that those who are the authorities of Jewish law are going to have to continue to grapple with how they're going to make this a responsible system again. Mm. Now, so I, I grew up in the conservative movement and I would say what, you know, the sort of left wing progressive branch where we like yeah. to sort of question everything and, and have a have an understanding for everything. And frankly, when I, when I you know, grew up and came of age religiously, it would be a little embarrassing to actually profess love of God. You know, yeah, right. I don't know if, you, if you know right. what I mean, but that's, you know, that's right. sort of like uh, like a Hallmark card yeah. as opposed to yeah. uh, some sort of, you know, true intellectual understanding. And right. so I, I found myself grappling with, so the, you know, the laws of kosher, um, I would 
try to figure out like what were the historical reasons, what were the functional reasons, you know, well, no pigs because of trichinosis and and this and that. Right. And, and I kept when I did this and my, my teachers kind of uh, kept coming back to the idea that the purpose is not to be known. It's simply, you know, God saying, walk this way. Um, and I had yeah. I had trouble with that. Um, yeah, because it was, yeah. it was hard for me to, to to accept that there was you know a walk this way that didn't have functional benefit. So what what do you see as the, the, the functional benefit in those times of keeping kosher versus whatever whatever it was people were doing that this became right. a compromise of? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I, I I appreciate that very much. I I I don't subscribe to the view that one should adhere to laws and theologies out of a blind faith, things they don't understand. In fact, um, I don't want to overstate this case, but I think we see a lot of dangerous fundamentalisms today and from all faiths that are proposing submission, uh, submission to systems of law and that uh, require, you know, to use Kierkegaard's term, the, uh, 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 teleological suspension of the of the ethical, basically suspending ethics uh, in the name of serving God, and in some cases there's no harm. If someone chooses to keep kosher because they're they, you know they, they don't understand the reasons, but they want to serve God. There's no harm done there, uh, you know, perhaps. Uh, in other cases, it's very dangerous. In any case, I subscribe to the Maimonidean and the rational approach that says that that um, that. Tradition should be embraced to be not only meaningful, but vehicles of justice. Uh, Maimonides teaches that the whole purpose of the law is to perfect one's own intellect or soul and to perfect society. And so if the, if, if the law is not doing that, something has gotten broken. And I think we see that here. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musar movement, the, the Jewish ethical and spiritual development movement, uh, a few centuries ago, um, was asked to certify a matzah, a matzah factory that it was kosher. You know, we have Passover's coming up uh, actually pretty soon. And he went in, and he, he looked at all the supplies, how much water was used, how the matzo was treated, and uh, they showed him everything for a few hours, and they said, so will you give us your certification that this is kosher matzo? And he said, no, I won't. They said, why? He said, because I saw the older women who were working there, and, and their hands were, were rough and even bloody from how hard they're working. If you mistreat your workers, this is not kosher. Hmm. And it was a reminder that this whole vehicle has been abused when it's become only about minutia of law and not about the treatment of workers or the treatment of land, the treatment of animals. And so I view kashrut, the, the, the kosher laws, as vehicles of spiritual and ethical consciousness. And uh, now to be clear, I think people can certainly achieve that through other vehicles. It's just a vehicle that works for me. Um, but I think its purpose is to get us to pause you know, um, uh, Viktor Frankl, the great founder of logotherapy, the Holocaust survivor and, and, and author, Man in Search of Meaning, taught that the moral moment exists in that brief moment between stimulus and response, where um, one, one, um, one who merely is on autopilot has a stimulus and, and an expected response, but one who chooses to live by higher moral calling ask themselves, why is this stimulus giving me this response? And so to here, I think with food, a lot of people don't have that pause 
to say, what am I putting in my body? Like, how did it affect my health? Where did this come from? What was the impact on the world? And I think Kashrut is one of those vehicles to get someone to pause and say, I'm going to make really intentional decisions about, about what I eat. And, and that, that just like Adam and, and Eve, this actually, this, my moral consciousness is born through my consumption, in a sense. So that's kind of what it's been for me. Um, uh, to be sure, you know, traditionally, there was certainly a component of trying to keep Jews with Jews. It was trying to prevent intermarriage. The rabbis believed that, that, uh, that intermarriage would lead to uh, uh, the weakening of Jewish ties. And so they thought, if, um, if you don't eat with people who don't keep kosher, then you probably won't marry them. And so I, I, some explained it as a vehicle to kind of strengthen Jewish uh, identity and, and continuity. But, but I think more powerful than that is um, th- this, th- this vehicle of, of ethical sensitivity. So um, when I got a bit older, I went to a Jewish summer <clears throat> camp. I went to the Ramah camps <clears throat> for several yeah. years. And there, <clears throat> was cert- there was certainly a, a strong ethic around certain things. <clears throat> but quite honestly, around food, the, the ethic was, did you say the blessings before and after? <clears throat> and there really wasn't there, you know. It, 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 the the attention became on the blessing as, as if, you know, it's like looking mm-hmm. at the finger instead of the moon to which it points. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, exactly. What, what have you found that actually helps people? Because, you know, this, this reminds me a little bit in a silly way of, you know, people putting affirmations um, in lipstick on their bathroom mirror or post-its or saying, well, I'm yeah. going to I'm going to think, you know, and pay attention when I chew my food. And these things as a stimulus, it can last for a little while, then it fades into the background. And I found that for mm-hmm. myself, saying the grace after meals, the Birkat Hamazon, almost never got me to think about what it was supposed to get me to think about. And the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the only exception was that at the, mm-hmm. on, on the Sabbaths and holidays, we would add a, uh, a psalm at the end that said, I've never, I've been young and I've been old and I've never seen the righteous in you know, mm. wanting bread, and I and that was mm. the only thing that, that raised my consciousness. Like, well, that's bullshit. Mm. Mm. Yeah, right. <laughs> and right. it's like you know, it, it it took something that felt like a falsehood to get me mm-hmm. to think. Whereas the platitudes mm-hmm. about sharing and you know, bread comes from uh, co-working the earth with with divine. How do we get people to pay attention in a real way? you know, that doesn't, that doesn't become rote and perfunctory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, thank you. You know, just, just thinking about that line you quoted from the end of the blessing after meals. Um, um, I was, I, I was young and I have aged and I've never seen a righteous person forsaken with his children begging for bread. God will give might to his people. God will bless his people with peace. You know, one interesting interpretation of that, and I think this is a lot of what text is about, reinterpretation rather than literal read, is that I, I have never, uh, um, the way one rabbi explains, I have never seen a righteous person forsaken means I've never seen and stood by idly and not got involved. And that he shows how uh, uh, the low ra'iti, I've never seen, is used in a different text, actually in the... Uh, in the, in the book of Esther, which we're going to read in Purim in just next week, uh, that that verb is used in a way that is an active form of seeing. I've never kind of stood by idly. So I think that 
a big part of the problem is that techs have been taught to kind of literally submit to these um, as opposed to having them be jump off points for broader, you know, broader, uh, broader understanding. And so I've also struggled with that text a lot. Um, but, you know, I, I think your point is a really, really good one because um, religion is not going anywhere. And um, it's, it, we see some of the worst and the best uh, uh, manifestations uh, globally right now. We see certain types of funda- fundamentalism and, and, you know, the, trying to maintain patriarchal society and, and, and other sort of ancient uh, approaches of absolutism and intolerance. And we also see some of the greatest uh, 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 sense of, of kindness and of, of collective good coming from, from these places. And I think that it's, uh, it's really important that we kind of figure out um, how we're going to uh, use these religious models to, to, you know, to further good. I was, um, I was, I was uh, recently talking with uh, Dr. Paula Caldwell Esselstyn about how we could uh, uh, get into the uh, African-American churches and use them as vehicles for health practices where cardiac disease can be so, so, so heavy. Um, how, how can the church be a vehicle? And in my own community, in our community, I'm thinking of the same in terms of synagogues. How can, how can the kiddush, the, the meal after the service on Shabbat, um, represent our values? And, and a bar bat mitzvah or a wedding represent our values? And so um, to circle back to your, to your actual question of how do we do that, um, you know, I think everyone needs different things, and I'm still grappling with, with this myself. Um, but I think there's a couple things we know. Um, one is that we know that we need partnership, right? Uh, I couldn't have jumped into to, um, to veganism and later into a, a plant-based diet and really getting off sugar and oil and, and, and the like um, without my wife. And we did it on our wedding day. And, and I see people struggling. When, when the struggle is even in one's home, that people have very different diets within the home. That's very challenging. So I think partnership, whether it's friends, a spouse, you know, whatever it is, is really important. Second is that next sort of sphere of relationships, of community. I think people need churches or synagogues or groups of friends or whatever it is that share these values, that reinforce it, that they, people don't feel isolated. You know, I mean, our daughter and I was at the birthday parties, and the question is, you know, can she eat – can she eat the things, you know, on the one hand, it might not be kosher. On the other hand, it might not, it might not be vegan. And, you know, where will she actually feel accepted anywhere? So the partnership community, I think on the individual level, we need to make public commitments. Uh, I know it sounds kind of strange, but I, I think of kind of maintaining our own sort of social status of when someone says publicly, they post on Twitter or Facebook, I'm on a diet for the next month. You know, they kind of look silly if, if someone saw them walking down the street with a bag of chips, you know. So I think um, I, I think some sense of like having spaces for public commitment where there's kind of accountability of what we're doing, because this stuff can be kind of hard. And, um, and 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 I am I am confident that um, that the Jewish community will lead the way on, on, on these issues and that it's going to be uh, our current generation is going to be kind of laughable you know, 50 years, you know, hopefully even less down the line of kind of what we were doing for bodies in the world. And um, I know we're going to get there. And I think we're still trying to be really strategic to figure out what model is going to get us there fastest. Mm. Well, it's funny because I, I think about, you know, growing up um, around a lot of people who kept kosher, for whom it was a very um, deep part of their identity. And... Oh. 
I learn a lot from them in, in the work I do trying to help people eat healthy. You know, so I've ne yeah. I never saw an observant Jew, you know, grew up going to a flatbush yeshiva and then, um, you know, went to, to a secular university, like struggling over whether or not to eat the, the popcorn shrimp or the cheeseburger. Right. And yet I right. see people who, who want to adopt a plant based diet for whom everything is a landmine of temptation. And right. and I've thought like 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 the the what's the difference? Like, is it is it and, and, and a lot of them, honestly, they didn't think that, the you know, a divine hand was going to strike them dead if they eat the cheeseburger. It wasn't it wasn't about fear or punishment. It was about something else. Do you do you have a sense of of what the dynamic is that makes it so easy? Yeah, yeah, you know, um, there's definitely a long line of Jewish guilt <laughs> of those who um, can't, don't, you know, they can see their grandparents shaking their head over them, um, you know, so, and there's this deep sense of survivalism, you know, which is connected to the guilt, the sense of, you know, the Jewish people statistically should not survive, and we kind of keep making it. But um, there's this deep sense that if we kind of abandon these things that have held us together for thousands of years, that we're just going to kind of wither away and that that would be a travesty not only to our, uh, to our past, but also to future generations. And so I think some view that commitment with that kind of intensity. You know, I also think that even for those who don't think that, you know, God is going to strike them down, that there is some metaphysics kind of connected to this um, around sort of this kind of higher, this higher purpose, um, and, um, uh, that, um, that, 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 that these laws of Kashrut are not only sort of this guilt factor, the survival factor, the sense of not wanting to be struck down, but in some sense it is, um, something, something, uh, something sacred in itself that, um, that, has has these mystical components to it that um, kind of affect our you know our character. Certainly, the rationalist rabbis thought that um, that this was just legal formalism, and that it's just the law you do it or you don't, even though it might be really important. But the mystics really thought we kind of the things we eat really determine our essence in a sense. Um, they, you know, they didn't think that, that eating pig, for example, was just a random, uh, you know, a random law we can never understand, but they're actually kind of dirty animals, so to speak, those who are in the mud or, you know, shellfish at the bottom of the sea, that these dirty things kind of affected us in some sense, you know, and I think they affected our consciousness of kind of what we're doing. But it's a wonderful question. You know, how can we, how can we learn something from this really tight knit, you know, steadfast kosher community, how can that carry over to the plant-based community? And I think that one of the problems is that, that, that the vegan, that the vegan communities don't necessarily have a lot of other values tying them together, right? They might have that commitment, but that commitment is not enough to build community uh, oftentimes, whereas the kosher bit is only one among hundreds of other identity factors. And so I wonder, like, how could, how could the veganism, or, you know, or, and or, or whatever version, vegetarianism, or you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, a meat reductionist, um, or you know, or the other thing, the full plant-based diet, how how can those values be packaged 
within a broader ethos of compassion, of community, of care, and where um, it's you know it's not that one choice that 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 links people together because I see it in the culture community. It's taken for granted that people are going to eat that way, and it keeps people together. Well, and and one of the things that I see in in your work, and especially on the Shemayim Varet's website, is a real ecumenicism around eating. You're, you're not telling people to become vegan. You're not telling them to reduce meat consumption. You're telling people it would be a nice thing if you became aware of what's going on and lived according to your values. Whatever they are, just you know, identify them and have the guts to live by them. And so... Right. And so therefore, you're not telling the whole world to become vegan. In fact, you even have some links to uh, documents that, that rate um, beef producers in terms of right. how well the animals are treated while alive, how humanely they're slaughtered, um, how the workers are treated, how the environment is treated. So right. I, think, I think there is... In, in, that's where it's there seems to be a big tent possibility. Yeah. I have lots of friends who yeah. are permaculturalists who who yeah. deeply want to protect and regenerate the earth, and they don't see anything in common with vegans. And right. yet, and yet, their co the core desires of their hearts seem to me to resonate very closely, but they're not speaking right. exactly the same language. How did you go? Right. How did you go about? Um, creating you know such a a why a big tent around this issue of eating yeah, animals yeah thank you i you know i i i think what you just named touched upon perhaps the most uh the most weighty factor as to why a lot of the social justice community and just broader society dismisses this issue um which is that i think <laughs> I think there's been a disproportionate number of overly zealous advocates in the vegan community that have really, and the animal rights community, that have really scared a lot of people away. Um, you know, what has been viewed as an extremism and people who are saying, you know, be vegan tomorrow or you're unethical. And I think that this has caused people to kind of shut off the conversation like, ooh, like that's that's way too intense for me. I, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't even imagine reducing meat. Not someone telling me to be vegan. I mean, it's such a disconnect, a different language. And so I think that um, that's done a lot of harm. I mean, I mean, it's probably done some good too. But, but um, I think this more gradual and big tent approach makes so much more sense on so many levels. And, and to be sure, I, you know, I, I really am a pluralist in that I believe there are multiple different ways to live good lives, different faiths, different commitments. And on this issue, you know, we're always making choices. Do I spend more money or, or spend less? Am I more, you know, we should be responsible with our expenses. Am I buying something more environmentally friendly or not? Is it better for an animal? I mean, where, who, you know, which place has better labor practices? And it's very rare we can kind of get everything right. So, you know, one philosopher explained that, that the moral, moral conscience is about feeling regret for the decision you can't make, right? You have both are good options and you, you, have, you can only choose one, but you still feel regret that you couldn't also make that choice. And I think being gentle and charitable with one another that we're not being, we're not being judgmental, we're just supporting each other is really important. And so in, in the Jewish community, we've kind of said, um, 
you know, if you're a meat reductionist, great. And if you're a vegetarian, great. And if you're vegan, great. And we want to, we, we want to create a community for the vegetarians and vegans because they have often, often felt alienated. But we also want to be a resource of, of Jewish education um, and also a source of advocacy on the other front. You know, when we try to make kosher shrita, uh, kosher slaughtering standards better, um, we're saying, look, we know people are going to eat this stuff. And so let's just try to improve the systems that exist also. So, but it is challenging because a lot of people are not pluralists. A lot of people really believe, especially when it comes to food and their own particular diet, that they have it right. And they have their own kind of studies to point to to show that they have it right. And so it's, it's become very alienating to kind of have that broad tech conversation. But we're trying to continue the model to say, like, look, this is sensitive. There's a lot of ethics involved, but we have to be gentle with one another. Beautiful. So I want to talk to you about um, kosher slaughter. And I guess first, um, I heard about you um, because of, of, of ramifications of a, uh, of a case that happened. I think it must have been a decade ago. Um, there, was, yeah. there was a slaughterhouse, that, uh, a kosher slaughterhouse, and you became known and I th actually, I think, um, vilified in certain uh, segments of the Orthodox community for, right. for airing our dirty laundry in public. Are you willing to talk about that? I'm, I'm more than happy to. We, um, so in, uh, on May, tw uh, May 12th of 2007, um, was the largest immigration raid in U.S. history at that time, where the ICE, the, the Department of, uh, uh, basically the Department of Homeland Security, uh, swooped down into Postville, Iowa, to the Robustians factory, and arrested hundreds of people. And um, what was exposed was that there was not only millions of dollars of fraud, um, but they were underpaying workers, meaning not even minimum wage, certainly not overtime. Uh, there were children working there. They had been using coyotes to bring immigrants from Guatemala to work in this uh, factory. They were working incredible hours for underpay, and they were put into debt because they were brought over by coyotes. And so it was really a very uh, uh, sad situation. Not to mention, uh, it had been exposed how, how terrible the treatment of animals were. Temple Grandin had had had, had some quotes on the issue herself on, on what was exposed. Um, um, and uh, to be sure, this was not a small operation. Agriprocessors or Robustian was producing 60% of the kosher beef in America and 40% of the kosher chicken. So this was a major issue. Now, as an Orthodox rabbi, I did something very controversial. Through an organization called Uri Lefedek, which has started the Orthodox Social Justice Movement, we launched a national and really international boycott against this company. And within a week or two, we had over 2,000 Jewish leaders signed on that until this company made the practices transparent, that they had improved uh, their standards, that no one would buy from them. And, um, um, you know, it was, he was found guilty. The owner was found guilty. He's currently in prison. And the, the, it's, the, it's basically the same factory, but it's owned by someone else. I, you know, I, I can't speak to current standards there. But it was very vilified. How could, you, how could you air the dirty laundry? How could you boycott, you know, an Orthodox company publicly? I mean, that's like anti-Semitic practically. But my feeling is, if this stuff really matters, then we have to stand up for it. If we really believe that Jewish law and values have some significance, you know, for it, uh, you know, for us, then um, 
when it's abused, I think we need to stand up to that. You know, you know, there's been a lot of critique of the of the Catholic establishment on the child abuse issues. When I see a priest stand up and and critique, you know, the Catholic Church handling of, of child abuse, I think, wow, like he he just he just brought honor to the Catholic establishment because he's standing up for values. And I, and I think that when we critique our own religions responsibly and our own denominations responsibly, I think it, I, I, you know, where there's misgivings, I think it raises the standards of what we're about. And so um, since then, um, there's still not transparency in the kosher industry, just like there's not in the, in the, in, in the, in, in the broader meat industry. Um, and a lot of the consumers are not demanding it, sadly. Um, and so we are uh, on a number of fronts, you know, pushing for transparency and pushing for some higher standards. There's a lot of meat that's all imported from South America, and uh, the standards are probably as bad, if not worse, than 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 it was in agroprocessors. And when you say no transparency, my understanding is that in order to be certified kosher by whatever uh, certifying body, that rabbis have to come and check it out. Right. So, right. so was it that they that they weren't looking, they weren't doing their job, they were just getting the check and and stamping it, or, or were they just ignoring everything yeah. that wasn't strictly letter of the law about meat handling? Exactly. The um, the kosher certifiers have made clear that they are in charge of the ritual certification and not the ethical or legal certification, and that they they can't uh, they, they can't take responsibility for that. They've also made clear that their primary concern is making sure that meat, kosher meat, is as affordable as possible for the American Jewish community, and that's the primary goal that that people can afford this stuff because of the high cost of, of Jewish living. And I think um, respectfully that that's an irresponsible approach. Um, that uh, of course we have to be concerned with the cost of cost of living, but, but more important are, are, are traditional values, um, that those are ordered in the process. And if one has to consume less because it, it might end up costing a little more to do this responsibly, then I think that has to be the case. You know, I'll give an example of something we're addressing now, shackling and hoisting, holding the animal upside down by the hind legs, uh, which is a very traumatic and painful experience has been outlawed in America. However, the kosher industry uh, imports meats from South America where shackling and hoisting is done. And so this is a, this, uh, this is a really problematic thing, uh, that in order to keep costs down, they're importing uh, conditions that are worse than the U.S. Than, than US allows for. So we're trying to put some pressure on that issue. Well, to me, I mean, the cheapest you know, cut of kosher meat is already roughly twice the price as the supermarket brand. So if if it's no, if it's no better from a from an ethical perspective, then they're you're getting ripped off anyway. Right, right, yeah, and that's exactly the case. You know, I'm kind of in a rare camp where there, there's sort of one camp that has said we're committed to this thing at all costs. Another camp that says, look, I find no value in this anymore, and both of those are fair. Um, and then someone like me who says, I still find value in this system, but it's currently not operating at its potential. It's operating like the rest of the industries, and, and that's a real shame. Um, you know, and it's, it's like we haven't caught up yet in, in the 20th century, in the 21st century. Industries started to rapidly grow, and all these standards started to rapidly grow. And everyone was trying to survive and to compete, and we kind of lost our, 
our our uh, our souls in that process to some degree, uh, trying to survive in a, in a very cutthroat capitalist system. And I think that we're going to fix it, and I hope soon. Um, to understand that um, this is a form of assimilation that was bad, a form of assimilation to American culture, which became, which became about just mass unconscious consumption. Mm, I, I love that framing of it as a form of assimilation, as opposed to a form of of maintaining a tradition. That's a yes, that's a exactly. very elegant bit of judo. Um, Thank you. But so you talk, you talk about earlier, we talked about cherry picking text and missing the, the meta ethic. And I guess the, the meta ethic here is a phrase, a Hebrew phrase, tsar ba'alei chayim, the, the suffering of living creatures. And to me, that's that's one of the sort of hit you square between the eyes, mega ethics of the of the, the of the Torah. That, you know, there's so many, you know, like you see laws, like they kind of make sense, like, you know, don't sleep with your uncle and don't murder. Right, like, right, we can, we can, right. But then there's like these weird, weird laws about helping your enemy lift their overburdened ass and and chasing the mother bird away from the nest before taking the eggs. It's like like weird stuff that could only be understood if it pointed to this big ethic of don't cause suffering to your fellow creatures. Exactly. Um, uh, this is, you know, um, distinguishes between biblical laws and rabbinic laws. And of the 613 biblical laws, this is one of them. Um, and then there's hundreds of rabbinic laws concerned with the same issue of as you mentioned that not causing pain to, to other creatures is, is uh, just as serious as keeping kosher, just as serious as the Sabbath. I mean, it's, it's, it's just as weighty, and yet somehow it's gotten, it's gotten neglected. And then there's all those other laws, which you started to list, of sending away the mother bird and, and how we treat animals. And even the Sabbath, one can't work their animal. I mean, the animal needs a break, um, you know, if they're being worked. And so... Um, um, you know, it's it's really it's really um, something that has been lost, and some have suggested it's not necessarily even concerned for the animal. It's about cultivating a, a, a compassionate sense of self. But of course, those two are interrelated. And uh, you know, the question is, how will we kind of educate the next generation to realize that our characters, our, you know, our character is molded by how we treat the most vulnerable in society. Uh, now, there's lots of vulnerable human populations, but the animal kingdom is a very vulnerable population in, in so many ways, and um, that that we're determined by that, uh, who we are. And I think we have to kind of look at ourselves in the mirror. Yeah, what, you know, what, one of the things that I've learned from that, that story of that uh, the slaughterhouse in, in Iowa is that there's really... The, the dichotomy between well we treat animals poorly but people well is kind is kind of false that you know on some level yeah you we can we can mourn the ethical choice that's not available to us but at some other at some other level the the there's there's the choice is you know we we live in a culture that kind of dehumanizes us that um you know that we, we can look at the way animals are treated as a precursor for how human beings are going to be treated in, in, in the next iteration of, of, of our culture. And that all of us together are, are kind of, you know, disrespecting the earth. 
Um, and yet there's so much um, of when people look at religion, it, we don't necessarily see these things. <laughs> it's like you, you need a, you, you know, you need a whole new lens on what your religion is really saying from, from these, you know, these weird laws where we, we shake branches and we, we smell big lemons and it's like, you know, when you, when you look at all that ritual in a, from a place of how should humans live on the earth, like the whole thing tells a story about responsibility and compassion, doesn't it? Yeah, I, uh, I, I really believe it does. You know, if you take another example, this notion that uh, one should not wear leather shoes on Yom Kippur. And part of the explanation among the Kabbalists is that how could someone kind of pray for mercy, pray for forgiveness, pray for compassion when they're not being compassionate themselves in that moment? Now, I'm not suggesting that those who wear leather are not compassionate people, of course, um, but at least on this elevated day of the year, some sort of sense of hyper, um, you know, hyper consciousness towards kind of what we're connected to and, you know, wh where have we been connected to death and where to life? And I'm someone who believes, I and mean, obviously as, an, as a traditional rabbi, that ritual is really important for reinforcing our values. You know, things like a Passover Seder, things like our prayer life, the things that we do consistently each day help to mold what we really care about, what we pray for. And, um, and so I think that I'm a part of a project of trying to reframe all of this powerful ritual in this regard. Um, and, and I think there's so much to work from the Jewish tradition. You know, a, a, a Christian colleague said to me recently, he said, I really kind of envy, you know, all this ritual you have. We don't have that in Christianity. I mean, he said, someone dies and we don't have ritual. You know, you have this whole shiva process and 30 days and avelut for a year of how you mourn. I wish we had that. And it's sort of ritual can be, help and hurt. It can block people from the bigger picture because they're just caught up in the minutia of ritual, or it can be this amazing vehicle for, um, for, for broadening one's sense of compassion and one's heart and soul. And so, um, you know, I'm continuing to grapple with that. In our Shemayim Baris conference, conference we have coming up in a few weeks, uh, one of the things we're going to do is, is to how do we reframe the Haggadah, the Passover story, around, um, around some of these values of compassion we care most about. And so it's a project I continue to, to engage in. Mm. So that's, that's, that's one of the things that I always appreciated about my own community involvement in, in, in Judaism was that at its best, it, it, was, it was never a sort of top-down explanation. It was always a, a recreation, yeah. a constructionist yeah. approach to the text where we, we have this text and it's, you know, it's blessedly sparse. So there's... There's themes, but there's also room to make it our own. So what what, right. what, are, what are some of the Passover themes for folks who are going to be listening to this, I guess, and end of March around the Passover season? What would you like us to see in the Haggadah that we may not have noticed before? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I think you're, uh, you're exactly right that, that Judaism is not very dogmatic. It really is about debate and argumentation and about struggle with texts and values. It's not, it's not a culture of, or at least in its ideal form of just kind of submitting and agreeing to higher truths as much as that grappling. And I think that, that Haggadah, which is really kind of modeled off of 
sort of a great a Greek symposium of of sharing philosophical ideas and and kind of you know uh, debating those um, has so much rich material. You know, to, you know, just to start with um, uh, this this notion of freedom from captivity um, that that the Israelites are freed from bondage from from Egyptians. And that we have to ask the same question today of who are we bringing freedom to? Um, there are on the human front, uh, are, we, we have a very broken prison system. We have people in slave labor still today. We have people, you know, working for wages they can't survive on. Um, we have uh, we have people with mental illness who uh, who, who need support on hundreds of levels of. Of, of helping others to become more free and becoming more free in the process ourselves. And certainly on this animal front, I mean, I, I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize the scale of billions of creatures who are in captivity uh, in, 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 you know, very small cages where they can't even move their entire existence. And I think this whole story is about, about how everyone is guilty when, and everyone is, is broken when we allow for that to exist around us, you know, the, uh, I learned from, um, Martha Nussbaum, a, uh, a professor at the University of Chicago, uh, the, the neo Aristotelian capabilities approach, which was all about that. If something has a, a potential that it's wrong to cut down its potential, every being should be able to actualize its own potential. And we, um, have set up social systems where we're, we cut down, uh, the potential of other human beings, and certainly of, of animals who could live a full life, a happy and normal free life, and we cut that down. So beyond the message of freedom, you know, I also think that um, that the second question, you know, I, Isaiah Berlin talks about um, positive liberty and negative liberty. And by negative liberty, he means you're free from, and positive liberty means you're free to. So you're free from Egypt. But now, how are you going to your positive liberty? What's the good life you're going to choose? What's the good society you're going to construct? And so freedom in the, in the Jewish model, I believe, is not just freedom from pain, freedom from dictatorship, from bondage, um, but it's, free, it's freedom to then make life-affirming choices. And for me, um, on the health front, one is choosing death when they choose to live an un, you know, under an unhealthy diet. They're choosing bondage. You know, um, and and so too, when one it doesn't care about the workers or about the animals or about the land, about broader society and trade agreements connected to our food systems, one is choosing death. And I think the true freedom is about gaining control of oneself and one's uh, and one's choices. So, it, it it sounds like you're you're asking those of us who take our faith seriously to be far more inconvenienced by them than maybe we'd like that this isn't, you yeah. know, it's, it's easy enough mm -hmm. for me to, uh, to put, put all my, uh, bread, you know, in storage and to, to buy a box of macaroons and to, to make the, you know, the straits, mm -hmm. uh, almond flour brownie mix. It's much harder for me to think about the, the billions of creatures who aren't free and and whose bondage I'm supporting and acquiescing to by not taking mm -hmm. a stand. You're, you're kind of you're kind of asking us to do something a little bit risky, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I, you know I am because um, 
Karl Marx had it both right and wrong. Um, he had it wrong that religion was only the opium of the opiate of the masses, but he also had it right that there that there is a component of comfort um, that that can come from just being a part of of these systems. Um, but I think the role of Judaism is to cultivate productive discomfort, um, not so uncomfortable that one doesn't want to be a part of it, but uncomfortable enough that it's productive for one to grow. It sort of challenges us. It puts us in the hot zone to kind of think and feel more deeply. You know, the way Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel taught it was that prayer, for example, needs to be subversive. It needs to break the callousness of one's of one's heart. Um, and that rich, you know, ri- you know, certain rituals like the Seder, it can't just be I'm together with my family. Let's read a few lines. We're bored. Let's eat. Like it really needs to be a space of conversation that kind of challenges us to think and feel more deeply about about our moral responsibilities and how we're kind of actualizing our short existence on this planet. Right. So let's, that brings me back to the Shemayim Varetz Institute, because I can remember a time when I did get religion, so to speak, and I tried to bring meaning to my family. And I remember, you know, the the indulgent sighs and the glances back and forth, like, you know, I hope this kid gets over this thing quick. Mm-hmm. You know, this mm-hmm. this is going to be, you know, three long, hard years of high school. If this is how he's going to be, the, the you know, the 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 arrogant little blank. Um, right. So and, you know, and I'm sure I was artless and, and mm-hmm. overly earnest and zealous in many ways. But I know a lot of people who who despair of having a meaningful conversation in in their home context, whether it's their their birth family, the family they grew up in, their church, you know, their community, that somehow, you know, everyone's mm-hmm. stuck in their ways. And if they come back with these crazy, radical ideas, that they're going to gain no purchase. So mm-hmm. how, how does Shemayim Varetz work to, to both give these people a community in which to have these conversations and then tools to go back into the mainstream? Yeah. You know, um, as a young and very underfunded organization, <laughs> we, uh, who, which currently doesn't even have a staff, actually, we're all kind of lay and board led. Um, we um, are trying uh, to produce resources and have conferences uh, around those issues. And we have a lot more work to do, to be honest, uh, to kind of uh, get that message out and prepare people for that kind of complexity to kind of uh, interpret the sources in these powerful ways. Um, and yet also not to kind of just kind of shovel them down people's throats in ways that aren't palatable. Um, and, um, and so I, you know, again, I think, I think it works best when it's packaged within a broader system of values. It's, you know, one shouldn't just bring sort of, you know, their commitment to animal welfare to the Seder, but that among other commitments, spiritual aspirations and other justice commitments and, and the ability to work on oneself. And I think if one kind of embraces in a broader conversation and kind of trickles this issue in among others, I think uh, it can be done very effectively. And the truth is, most people who attend a theater today are not very empowered or excited about the experience. Someone who shows up who is excited and empowered and informed, I think a lot of people are kind of hungry for meaning and for new interpretation. So um, um, I think that people will find a very receptive audience oftentimes if, you know, if it's a space where people are, 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 are interested in meaning making. Um, so I, I would really encourage people to experiment with this at, 
in their own communities. And if they find sort of an oppressive audience, I think it's important to kind of break from that space and find a more authentic space uh, where one can kind of, you know, help one's values flourish more deeply. It's, uh, <clears throat> you know, the value of family is really, really strong, but, um, you know, it's also really important that we live authentic spiritual lives where we're, uh, we, where our, our experiences are not just watered down, but actually uh, are, are, are deeply meaningful for us. Nice, because I'm, I'm remembering a story. I don't know the source, but it's uh, the man goes to uh, ancient city of Sodom to uh, to preach and to tell them that they're sinning and they need to mend their ways. And the first few days, he's a novelty and people, you know, kids come up and throw rocks and rotten fruit at him. And he he keeps going. And several years later, he's still at it. And he's part of the scenery now. No one even notices him. They walk by. And finally, one kid comes up and says, Look, mister, you've been doing this for as long as I've been around. Why? Why? Do you, obviously, no one pays any attention to you. Why do you keep doing it? And he said, Well, first, it was so I could change them. And now it's so they don't change me. And wow. Wow. <laughs> and there's some there's there's something, yeah. you know, both heroic and really pointless. About right. that kind of activism, um, right? You know, there, there, there's now, and, I, and that's a really powerful story. That our modeling speaks so much powerful, more powerfully than words. Um, we know this from parenting that kids watch everything, and much more important than any lecture is is how we how we model for our children. But it's also for this. I don't think we need to feel this burden to kind of um, shove this you know, every stat down people's throats. I think we just need to be positive, kind, compassionate people and live by our principles. And people are attracted to that. You know, when I think about my own journey, <clears throat> I saw vegetarians, I saw vegans, I saw activists, and they weren't even necessarily approaching me. I mean, I, I just kind of noticed that I listened to them. And I was intrigued by them and I was inspired by them. And, and I think that this is the most important thing, that <clears throat> that our process of engagement is is social and compassionate and, and normal. Uh, nobody wants to be a part of something that's kind of not normal or kind of, or kind of, uh, that's that, that kind of weird. If it's not fun, engaging, you know, thoughtful. So, um, yeah. And I have that concern, um, that a lot of people do become marginalized when they, when they're, they're, they're very vocal about this, but you know, that, that, that guy who's standing there protesting, you know, it's true. I mean, a lot of people fade from their principles because they feel unheard. And I think we have to strengthen each other. Mm. So when I talk to people, sort of, you know, my uh, civilian friends about animal issues, I tend to to really downplay it. I find most people are suffering enough in their own lives that they'd rather start, you know, their their way in is maybe health or typically sort of weight loss or or some disease process that they've identified within them. Um, but with within the the Jewish community and within communities of faith where people do to some extent self-identify as holding to a higher standard as you know the old Hebrew national ads had it you know we, we answer to a higher authority what do you find that there's one issue that is sort of the the easiest one to get people to agree with it is it the, the hoist and shackle is it veal is it um, yeah. You know, what, what's yeah. what's the one that if if someone has never thought about this before, but they're a reasonably t dialed in Jew, that would kind of wake them up the the most predictably. 
Yeah, yeah. I I think um, that um, you know it's interesting to watch Israel, which which is something I, I mean I lived in Israel for a number of years, but I but I can't claim to understand anything going on there. It's an incredibly complex society, but there's a huge number, a huge community of vegetarians and vegans in Israel. And I saw stats recently that I think it, it, that, that it, was, it was the highest in the world, you know, per capita or something. I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, five, something like 5% vegans and like 12 to 15% vegetarians or something. Uh, you know, um, I'm not sure if you have those stats, but, um, but uh, something is going on over there. Um, um, and, you know, and, and the IDF, the Israeli army, has vegan options that they now provide because there's such a huge population of Israeli soldiers who, 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 who are eating that way. Um, and certainly their, their model of consumption is different than, than the States in a lot of ways, but they're kind of a, a more earth-based culture. They're, they're, you know, there's still that socialist ethos of, 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 you know, get your hands dirty and, you know, in the Holy land, so to speak. And I think in America, we've lost touch with that. But I think that, um, that the two factors in general, um, one is just this human health factor. You know, I, I'm currently leading a social entrepreneurship incubator where um, young Jews are launching new organizations. And one of the biggest fascinations and interests among 20s and 30s is just this health factor. And that's always been true, but it feels more true now than ever, that they want to build community around those values. And so I think um, they're really getting that um, not only just, you know, you know weight loss, uh, and the problem of cardiac disease, but just wanting to, to, to live, you know, in a healthy way as a principle. So that one is, is, is very good. And I think that we need more, we need to be equipped uh, better as, you know, as clergy and as, as Jewish educators to be able to talk about those, uh, those points. And then I think it's, it, it is uh, understood by almost everyone that the factory farming system is broken. I think uh, by now everyone has probably seen at least one documentary, I, I would hope. Um, or read one New York Times article that kind of sh- exposes what's really happening. So I think everyone kind of gets, you know, even if they're cynical to say, oh, there's no other option. Uh, I think everyone gets the human health bit and that factory bit on some level. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to say everyone, but a significant population. Um, within the stricter kosher community, I think, um, you know, sadly, veal is not yet, um, t- you know, is not yet assumed. Um, there's still many, many kosher restaurants and, and stores that sell veal, and we're 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 uh, launching a, a an anti-veal campaign ourselves to have synagogues and 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 kosher establishments and restaurants uh, commit to not buying and selling veal. Um, and then I think the shackling, the hoisting, also everyone knows it's not it's not required by law, um, and it's it's just sort of extra. Um, so. Um, but I think that that um, that that moving towards reduction, uh, animal product reduction, is still very difficult. I think there's still a sense that if people just eat a little, you know, I, I, you know, if they just have meat twice a day instead of three or once instead of two, or you know, um, that, that 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 everything is is really just fine as long as you do things in moderation. And I think um, it, it's less of a principal decision. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where it's at. You know, we're continuing to try to understand this. There haven't been surveys in this map, but I speak about it a lot and I actually find it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I kind of have a, a diverse bio of different affiliations. I mean, one of the main things people want to talk to me about when they just see things and evolve with is this, I say, Oh, why did you choose this? Why? So there's a, there's a great intrigue today about why someone would choose this kind of life. 
Um, and, and, and I think people are hungry to kind of search this and, and understand it. I think if we can do it in non-threatening and engaging ways, we have a huge opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because um, to talk about, you know, social justice for others, to talk about the environment, to talk about animals, those all sound like ethical concerns. But somehow there's a, and it doesn't make sense to me, but there's a part of me that says, well, taking mm -hmm. care of my own health, that's not about ethics or religion. That's right. convenience right. or selfishness. And yet there's a, there's a very strong Jewish tradition, as there is in practically every tradition, mm -hmm. to view the body as a gift that needs to be honored and taken the utmost care of, right? Yes, exactly. You know, um, taking care of our of ourselves is an ethical com component on um, on our families because we need to support our families, and you know, at the least, we don't want them to be slaving over taking care of us in our sickness. Um, although tragically that has to happen sometimes. Um, it, it's an ethical commitment because we know our healthcare system is, is interconnected. We're all kind of paying for one another. Um, and when we don't take care of our own health, we kind of place a burden upon society. And like you said, on a spiritual level, the body is considered sacred. It houses the soul. That to the extent in Jewish law that when one dies, they do a tahara, they, their body gets washed and they get put into a white, uh, kind of gown uh, and, and put into the earth. I mean, it's 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 dealt with so you know in such a sacred manner um, that it's really kind of a, a you know a sanctuary in a sense. And so, um, taking care of health is not just some kind of hedonistic sense of wanting to look and feel good. You know, uh, although it's fine to want to you know look and feel good, it, it really is a broader ethical commitment. You know, on a spiritual level to our families and society. Mm. So for someone who's listening to this, who, who resonates with the message, um, how can they find out more? How can they get involved? You know, is, is this Jewish only or you know, Jew friendly? How, how, how should you. people yep. who are listening to this, um, what, what actions would you like people to take if they feel moved? Thank you. In terms of reading more, I um, last year I had an article in the Wall Street Journal um, on, on this issue. Um, I, at, uh, last month I had an article in the Jerusalem Post on, on, on this issue as well. I, I have a couple, a number of pieces out there that are found on the Shemayim Arts website. Someone can um, like me on Facebook, Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. I, I post a lot of things there. Or on Twitter, Rav Shmuley, R-A-V-S-H-M-U-L-Y. They can visit our website, shemayimvarts.org or rabbishmuley.com. Um, I've, 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 uh, I've uh, written seven books uh, in, in on Jewish ethics and there's sprinklings of of, of ideas, uh, you know, uh, related to our conversation within those books. And we also have um, a Shemayim Barrett's Facebook page, and we have a listserv where people are in a more of a conversational activist space. And as I mentioned, we have these conferences, uh, which are invite-only, but those who are looking to demonstrate leadership. I also am hoping to find, and maybe this will help to lead to it, this podcast, um, partners in other faiths, because I think that we shouldn't just operate in our own faith communities, but we should build coalitions. Um, certainly, you know, beyond the faith community as well, but within the faith world, I mean, I think we should have Muslim and Christian and Jewish and Buddhist and, and Hindu and all these groups should be collaborating and learning from one another on how to kind of do this stuff and building, you know, building a collective uh, force. So uh, that doesn't currently exist, to my knowledge, um, on, you know, on that kind of level. So I'm hoping not only to build a strong Jewish coalition, but also to build an interfaith one. Mm. Yeah, imagine if... Uh... If religions and, and faith communities 
sort of made it, you know, the, the sermons about treating animals well and treating our bodies well and, and that kind of environmental and social justice, like the thing we hammered home day after day. Uh, exactly. You know, because where, where religion in America went wrong is that people started to think when I go to church on Sunday or synagogue on Saturday, that that is my religious, that is my, that, like, that is the space that where, where religion is confined to, as opposed to understanding the broader ethos that if this matters, it transcends, you know, it, 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 uh, it, it, um, it enters our, our, our business ethics. It enters the way we treat our spouses and our children. It enters the way, the, you know, the food we eat, how we think of our societal responsibilities, that um, it's the only way that religion matters and isn't full of, you know, uh, hypocrisy. Mm. All right. Well, Rav, Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, thank you so much. I'm, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm reminded of, uh, of a lot of my own questions and struggles and journey, and I feel a real connection, um, a, a returning to the, some of the ethical principles that I frankly sort of lost, lost touch with and forgotten a little bit. So I, I appreciate it personally. And so for folks who want to find out more, the, the, the links to everything you mentioned will be in the show notes at plantyourself.com. And Rav Shmuley, may you and Shemayim Varetz go from strength to strength. I mean, thank you. You know, Howard, uh, you're you're very you're very uh, very highly regarded in the field, and I'm very inspired by the work you do, and not only by by the work you do, but your your humble inquiry to understand more deeply and critically from from broad sources uh, inspires me because I think we should be a part of a a lifelong journey of learning and growth, and I think that 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 level of wonder and awe and mystery. Uh, um, is is what is what enabled us to become better, and and I feel this conversation has 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 really sparked a lot of uh, important uh, important thoughts for me, and I'm very grateful for you, and I wish you and your family and your network just a lot of a lot of success. Well, thank you so much for that, and let's stay in touch. Great, thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. I hope you got a lot out of that interview with Rabbi Shmuley. I hope uh, it was as inspiring to you as it has been to me. A couple of notes for upcoming stuff. So this is the beginning of April 2015, and my friends uh, Colin and Nelson Campbell have just released a documentary called Plant Pure Nation, and it's showing around the country in select theaters. They're actually going on a bus tour. Um, throughout the United States. You can find out when it will be in your area by going to plantpurenation.com or checking them out on Facebook. Um, the documentary, I was involved in some of the early days uh, working with, with Nelson um, on, a, on the project in Mebane that's featured in the documentary. It's amazing stuff. So if you get the chance, uh, come out, bring your family, bring your friends, and help uh, spread the movement. Next week, the my guest is Mimi Kirk, her second appearance. Um, she wrote a beautiful book on juicing. And so if that's something you're interested in, uh, you'll get a lot out of that. And more about upcoming shows in upcoming weeks. So with that, enjoy the spring, enjoy the warmer weather if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Get some plants in the ground um, smile, listen to some birds, and as always, be well, my friends.